When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Happy second half of July. Happy second half of July to you too. As they don't say, what have you got to report? Well, can I show you something? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. What happened? Do you want to tell them what you're looking at? Your hand. Your fingers are sort of in plaster. Yeah, I'm in a cast. What happened? Well, firstly, you should see the other guy. But I was... Riding a lime bike the other morning. Oh, no. Yeah. I was on my way to do a two-day course to become a captain of a, a, a motorboat. What? Because basically we're, we're renting a, a house in the summer. It's got a little boat with it. Mm. And my wife is so traumatised by the last time she was in a boat with me that she refused to, to get in one again unless I'd, I did some kind of course first. So you're sort of saying it's her fault, this accident that then befell you? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, it hadn't <laughs> quite occurred to me, but yes, I am, I suppose. So um, I was on my way there on this, this line bike and there's this bit where the cycle lane joins with the footpath and I was kind of peering ahead to see where it rejoins the road when in fact I should really have been peering directly in front of me where there was a big pole attached to a street sign and I rode into it at speed, handlebar first. Oh, my God. My, my knuckle took the impact and I've um, fractured oh part God. of my hand. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Jeff. Yeah. That's quite shocking. Yeah, it was awful. But there was no other, no one else involved, which is unusual. No, just, just me and a pole. Do you think you could sue the pole for sort of <laughs> having moved in a funny way or sort of... I think, it, I think it could sue me for not looking where I'm going. I'm so sorry. It's, it's the sort of accident a four-year-old would have, not a 50-year-old. Yeah, that's why I'm a bit quizzical. What What is the sort of take-out message? Look where you're going. But I've got to the age of 50 without breaking anything. Have you ever broken anything? Yes, I did. I When I was leader, I broke... So what happened was that I fell over while walking with Justine. It was like 2011, I think. And I fell over looking at my phone 
and it was quite painful. I sort of fell into it like I think we were walking on moors or something, and it I fell into a hole or something and stumbled. And then my knee and my wrist were really hurting for 10 days afterwards. And Justine's view was I was just being a hypochondriac. And eventually after 10 days, I went to UCH. I think I went about my knee and they said, oh, well, your knee's all right. But I had actually broken my wrist and I had to have an operation. Wow. Did that make you feel, oh, it must be, it must be quite tough that I yes. walked around yes. for a week yes. dealing with it? High pain threshold, 10 days, I think. I just kept saying, oh, it's really not getting any better. And Jill, who worked for me, the saintly Jill, eventually said, look, I think we've just got to take you to A&E. And were you in a cast? Maybe it was a small cast on my wrist. It must have been, yeah. You'd be surprised how much you use both hands, though. So how long is it in cast for? As long as it takes. They're going to see how it's uh, how it's healing in about 10 days' time. Shall I send you some grapes? Yes, but maybe you have to peel them for me first. Do you like your grapes peeled? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm I'm conveying all my sympathy. Thank you. Now, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. Well, look, after my Glastonbury experience, I wanted to look at music festivals in a bit more detail because I've now discovered that music festivals exist. You've got the book. You, you sent me an article on it at the weekend. Yeah, as well. and people attend them. Millions of people, in fact, attend them each year. And that number was growing year on year before the pandemic. But a whole combination of factors have had a huge impact on the sector, notably lockdowns, cost of living crisis, and so on. But hundreds of music festivals are still taking place every year. And we're going to be talking to academic Chris Anderton about why that is, along some of the history behind music festivals, to Kate Osler, who's a festival director for independent festival El Dorado, and to Chiara Badiali, an expert on how festivals can tackle the climate crisis. Fantastic. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is the young V&A. Oh, I thought you were going to say The Young Me. It used to be called the Museum of Childhood. It's in Bethnal Green in London. It's reopened. They, they've spent a lot of money on um, renovating it. And we went at the weekend and it is, it's brilliant. Um, there's some great interactive bits. And it's just very odd seeing bits of your life behind glass in a museum. Toys that I had when I was a kid. Star Wars toys, Kermit the Frog, Doctor Who toys. You know, I think I went to the Museum of Childhood when it was the Museum of Childhood with my kids and we bought a bagpuss. A saggy old ragpuss. Yeah. There's quite a lot to be said for bagpuss, isn't there? Very much so. Although I think I've tried to show it to Gene on YouTube and it is extremely slow. You think it's a bit dated? I think it's good, but do you not find showing your kids stuff, it's, it's the pace of it. That is the problem. Do you think there's a sort of episode in this? The pace of children's TV has increased. Maybe. It feels that there's a little bit of overlap with the stuff we did on the attention economy, perhaps. But I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just a difference, isn't it? But maybe it is a terrible thing and we could do some scaremongering. Nah. <laughs> um, so what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful, because I know you have a new podcast, Jeff, and I'm constantly looking for tips for your new podcast. And I think I have mentioned this to you before, but you haven't bitten. Uh, there's now a second series of The After Party, which is an American murder mystery comedy series. Yeah, I do think I told you about that in the first place, but carry on. Oh, did you? I think so, yeah. Oh, that's so embarrassing. Okay, sorry. And it stars uh, Tiffany Haddish, Sam Richardson, Zoe Chow, and it's quite undemanding, I would say, but in a good way. Justin and I tend to watch together, but I've started watching series two on my own. Oh! <gasps> Yeah. That's, a, that's a terrible betrayal. Is that? Do you think that is a betrayal? Yes, but the good news is there's, there's no way she will ever hear about it because it's not like she's going to listen to the podcast, is it? No, that's true. Um, but anyway, I do like a good murder mystery. It's undemanding, but undemanding is good. That's what we aim for every week. Yeah. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. 
To start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Chris Anderton, who is Associate Professor in the Cultural Economy at Solent University. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ed. Let's start with this question. How, how did your interest in researching music festivals begin? And was it a good excuse to spend more time at festivals? Well, certainly that. But no, I did a, a master's at University of Liverpool, and I'd looked at the research that had been done, and most of it was on recorded music and performance, and very little had been done on music festivals at that time. This is about 20 years ago. So I just saw an opportunity in an area that hadn't been worked on before. Do we know what was the first ever music festival in the UK? There have been quite a few. I mean, it's the classical music festival, the Glyndebourne yeah. Festival, uh, which is in the 1930s. It's probably one of the earliest. In terms of popular music, it probably the Bewley Jazz Festival, quite local to me, actually, in the New Forest. And that would have been late 1950s. Right. And it started as a one-day festival and became a camping festival before it finished. And if that's the sort of beginnings, where are we now? I mean, do we know how many music festivals there are, how many people go? Yeah, the statistics are a little bit difficult to work out, but the estimates are around about eight or 900 a year in the UK. And there's a lot of young people, but also increasingly a lot of older people, families, middle-aged people as well. So the, the demography has shifted quite a lot over the last 20 or so years. And I was seeing something recently about lots of people of my generation, i.e. over 50, now going to festivals. Do we know the cause of that? It's part of the mainstreaming of, of festival life in, as a whole, really. So partly there are people who maybe when they were younger didn't go to festivals and felt they missed out when they're going back again. There's partly that. There's partly those who did go when they were in their teens or early 20s. Yeah. And then they had, you know, children came along and there was sort of, you know, a gap of 15, 20 years where maybe they didn't go because in those days they weren't especially child-friendly. And they have become so again. And so people are sort of going back and it's, you know, it's a staycation. I'm in the missed out category. What was the first festival you ever went to? My first one was actually um, a place called Cropperty, Cropperty Festival, which is in Oxfordshire and run by the folk rock band Fairport Convention. So not very hip, but it was a very nice event on the Woodstock model. One big field, one stage. Now, you mentioned Woodstock. So the first Glastonbury was, I think, 1970 and Woodstock took place in 1969, obviously, in the U.S., how have these two events influenced the whole sort of mythology and history of festivals? Oh, enormously. I mean, worldwide, obviously, the, the Woodstock Festival and its, uh, its message of peace and love and, and so on. And the fact that it was free and seemed to go off, at least according to the media, relatively well. It sparked many copycat events around the world in the UK and across over into Europe or all the way down to, to Australia, there were events that were influenced by that particular event. And there's just the idea of the Woodstock Nation, you know, the, the young people getting together in a field, having a wonderful time, taking drugs, etc. And in the UK, the situation was sort of slightly different, I suppose. Glastonbury, the first one at Pilton was in 1970, but it was the 1971 that creates the myth. So in 1971, it's created by these sort of countercultural types from London, who come out to uh, to Michael Lewis's farm and then they run the event. So it was quite countercultural, very much. It's hard to sort of remember this now because something like mm -hmm. Glastonbury's become very mainstream, so much so that people like me end up going. Um, but it was very countercultural, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And it was very much a youth culture sort of experiment in many ways, and they didn't last all that well during the early 1970s because the organisation of the uh, those early festivals was pretty poor. You know, you have the situation where you may end up listening to bands literally all the way through the night, you know, so a band would be coming on at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning. 
So when Lana Del Rey was cut off at midnight, <laughs> I think, at Glastonbury this year, yep. that, w- that was not happening in the 1970s. Absolutely not, no. It was the same with Woodstock, you know. Um, Jimi Hendrix played sort of five o'clock, six o'clock on the last morning on the Monday. So something like Glastonbury, when did it go from being countercultural to more mainstream? Uh, that's with the TV coverage, I would say. So it's sort of mid-1990s. Interesting. Probably around about then when uh, Channel 4 first moved in and then the BBC a a few years later um, took over. Uh, So probably around about that time, so just after also the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act of 1994. What was the impact of that? So the impact of that was at the time we had lots of uh, outdoor raves, illegal raves, if you remember that whole scene. Oh, yes. And so as soon as the Criminal Justice Act was brought in, which made it very difficult to run those without putting yourself at great expense, really, what you saw was the commercial promoters saw an opportunity. And so music festivals started adding on dance music stages. And some of the commercial promoters like Mean Fiddler started running their own dance music events as the glass we started moving those sort of things in as well so you have an opportunity where you start to see the shifts in partly demography but also in the styles of music that are played at festivals you know now you can go and see a festival for whatever your flavor is this wasn't the case in the 70s but it started to become that in the 1990s as in just much bigger breadth yeah yeah so different types of music most of the festivals going through the 70s were kind of rock festivals, really. But now you have full-on pop festivals, and it's like chart music. And you have world music festivals. You always have the folk music festivals bubbling away, but the EDM festivals that we have now are very different as well. EDM meaning? Electronic dance music. It sounds like they have become more commercialised uh, over the years. I mean, I was quite str- I'm being quite struck at Glastonbury that they are quite careful about not allowing overt sponsorship. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. And they sort of pride themselves on not having lots of billboards of companies and so on. That's right. Although, of course, they do benefit from sponsorships. Yeah. It's just they don't allow them to advertise that fact. The quid pro quo, I suppose, for that is that the the sponsors, I believe, you know, they're able to bring people to the event. Tickets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, has it become much more commercialized? It sounds like it has. It has, yeah. So originally, most festivals would have been run by uh, an individual promoter. That promoter might have won one or two events. This was during the 70s and 80s. But nowadays, probably since the early 1990s, mid-1990s, when Mean Fiddler started buying up festivals, starting with Reading and then Reading and Leeds, Mean Fiddler's now transformed into Festival Republic, and Festival Republic is partly owned by uh, Live Nation, who own most of the very large festivals in the UK now. So how many of the large festivals are independent and how much are part of the big commercial providers? If you're thinking in terms of the rock and pop sort of music, very few of the large festivals, I would say, are now independent. Glastonbury is unusual in that respect. It's unusual, although it has had dealings with um, various large corporations, um, including Festival Republic at one point. And what's been the impact of that, would you say? The impact is that if you really, really like one or two brands of beer, you're sorted. Because if you go to one of their events, they have beer sponsors uh, doing the boring rights, and it's the same drinks every single event. For the smaller players in the market, the independents, it can be more difficult to find headliners because all the best headliners are taken by those with the deepest pockets. But also quite a lot of the bands are kind of mid midway up the, uh, the fame ladder or below. They're also locked into various contracts, which means they can't play other festivals during the summer. It's difficult for smaller or independent festivals to find headliners that will bring the public in, which is why they've kind of moved away from the model of 
it's all about the headliner. They've shifted over to this kind of boutique model where you have lots and lots of other things happening on site. Podcasts, for example. Indeed, podcasting, yeah, or, you know, um, book tents, uh, you know, those sorts of things as well. Um, gone down that route. One of the criticisms is that people have music festivals, they've become very much more middle class. Is that really true? Is there any evidence to bear that out? I think it's related to the way that the demography has changed and the sheer numbers of festivals that we have now. So it's more obvious because you see certain events which basically market themselves in that kind of middle class kind of a way. I remember uh, Melvin Benn, who's uh, from Festival Republic, he talked about the Latitude Festival and referred to it as being like a Sunday supplement. Right. So it has that kind of you know feel to it. And other ones like Cornbury are also sort of known as being you know, posh festivals, if you like. Right, right, right. But if you go back to the 70s, um, the difference was that class wasn't really the issue. It was about youth. Many of those younger people were probably from middle class families. Yeah. But it wasn't about, they weren't working class events at all. Perhaps they were more egalitarian in as much as anybody could go. Yeah. Uh, and now people are getting priced out of the larger events uh, because ticket prices have gone so high. But then you have this segmentation whereby, you know, you, there are events that are very much aimed at older people, those that are aimed at families. And so the accusations of being, being middle class comes with that territory, I think. Now, Talk about politics at these festivals and sort of it being these being political events. As they've become less countercultural, have they become less political, less a vehicle for political messages? I think so. The shift has been in the nature of the politics, I guess. So if you go back to the 1980s, if we just look at Glastonbury, for example, in the 1980s, it was the Glastonbury CND Festival. Oh, interesting. And it wore its politics very clearly in its name. And then around 1990 and into the 2000s onwards, it shifted over to the kind of Water Aid Oxfam and a different narrative in terms of its politics. Sustainability is the main sort of aspect of this that people talk about. I noticed this year in terms of Glastonbury, the political aspects, not that strong this year. You know, in previous years, we've had, you know, Greta Thunberg or we've had uh, Jeremy Corbyn one year or... Stormzy, Dave, making political pronouncements from the stage and seem to be very little of that at Glastonbury this year. Let's end here, Chris, which is what's your favourite festival? I still think the Cropperty is a lovely festival. It's a very friendly festival and it's one of those where it's just, it's one stage, one field. <laughs> and it's all about the people that are there. So there's less walking around yeah. because I must say when I took my kids to Glastonbury, I realised that was a mistake. That was a rookie error because there was too much walking around for them. Absolutely. We had a local festival for a little while down here called Blissfields, and that was a really lovely event. And I think as with most things, what makes your festival experience is people. not necessarily the music, it's the people around you, yeah. the people you go with. And um, as long as they're there, you're going to have a good time. Well, look, Chris Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, with me now is Kate Osler, who's Festival Director of the El Dorado Festival. Hello, Kate. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thanks for talking to us. And first of all, how frequently do you get people turning up disappointed that it isn't, in fact, a festival celebrating the ill-fated early 90s BBC soap opera El Dorado? Hasn't happened yet, but, you know, there's still time. (laughs) (laughs) Which needs to be absolutely clear that that isn't what it is. What is El Dorado? Tell us about it and the, the, the background to it. So El Dorado is a boutique camping festival held on the beautiful grounds of East Norcastle Deer Park in Herefordshire. We're quite a small show, so about 9,000 people this summer. And I guess we're sort of a celebration of all things, I, I would say, sparkly, fun, silly, with a really eclectic lineup. We're quite production led, so there's quite a lot of creative structures. We have our own Miami Vice Street on site, as well as a little bar in the woods called The Nest. Rather than lots of big stages, it's a little place for you to explore and I guess be yourself for a weekend. And what's your background? What led you to set it up? Live music has always been a really massive part of my life. And when I started to get into my teen years, I realised very quickly if you started handing out flyers or (laughs) doing things, working on shows, you've got free tickets. So I've done everything from like selling programmes, selling merchandise, handing out flyers, bar work, etc. Just sort of be part of live music. And it really sort of grew from there. But I think like fundamentally for festivals for me, I was, I got work experience at a brand agency in London and they did this festival called Ben and Jerry Sunday, which the premise was you get free ice cream and uh, go and watch some bands in a park. That's a good premise. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. So I was sort of helping backstage and I was loving running around backstage and sort of being involved with the team. And I was asked to go onto the stage where Ash were headlining and go and get the set times for a competition winner. And I just remember stepping up those steps and looking out and seeing thousands and thousands of people and this real like electric feeling and just remember being like, whatever this is, I've got to keep doing it. I don't care how, I just need to be involved. So it sort of all grew and flourished from there, really. So then El Dorado, what was the gap that you were trying to fill? El Dorado's the child, <laughs> I guess, of um, two music companies, uh, one a music collective AEI group and another Cirque du Sol, which is a big student production-led nationwide club tour. And I think it was a real natural evolution into like, how do we create more for this community? What can we do on a bigger scale for this club community that are coming to our shows week in, week out? And I think for us, a lot of our sort of favourite festivals growing up were sort of evolving, changing, getting bigger and bigger. And I think we were, you know, inspired by so many other shows before us, like the Secret Garden Parties of the World, Festivals of the World, and, you know, to an extent, even the little pockets of Glastonbury. 
actually creating something really intimate and fun that reflected our love of all different types of music and entertainment. So yeah, Eldorado just really evolved from there. You've just had the 2023 festival a few weekends ago. How was this year? The crowd was incredible. It was a brilliant party. There's lo- like We had loads of highlights. It was just really wonderful seeing people back and partying. It was fabulous. I think there's so many challenges now to producing festival events post-pandemic. And like like most people, you know, costs are extreme. There's inflation across the board. That really affects people's ability to purchase tickets also. So for us, you know, our costs pretty much doubled from 2019 uh, post-pandemic into 2022, which, you know, as an independent show is definitely challenging. So you have to really relook at how things are structured and how things are set up. We're part of a collective, the Association of Independent Festivals. And I think, you know, when you're an independent and you don't have the economy of scale of multiple, multiple shows, inevitably those costs definitely put a lot more pressure on a single festival. So it's definitely the most challenging event. We also experienced some severe weather, which fortunately didn't shut us down. But we're going to see more challenges coming up in terms of production and producing shows for sure. But all I can say is it was amazing to see crowds back it felt like that sort of total liberation moment and seeing everyone express themselves in every sort of outfit under the sun. I know there's been a lot of conversation about the fact that the pandemic meant that a lot of teenagers hadn't had what's come to be thought of as a real rite of passage, a a festival experience. So tell us about the approach to that. For sure. So the Association of Independent Festivals is the UK's leading national not-for-profit trade association. And they represent around over 100 festivals now across the UK. So we've been part of the association since 2018. We launched a campaign called First Festival this summer, which was to allow anyone in the UK sort of turning 18 or who turned 18 during the pandemic to gain access to festivals. Because as you sort of mentioned, like a lot of young people missed that first festival experience during the pandemic and rising costs have also now created further barrier to entry. I'm obviously very passionate about festivals. They're hugely important experiences, you know, create memories, friendships, community, new ideas, um, inspire great conversation. And I think, you know, the belief behind it is how can we get these people back into festivals and give those experiences? So the inspiration really came from these sort of European initiatives where government vouchers are gifted to young people turning 18 to use for cultural events and activities. I think it's around three to 500 euros in some countries. And they're gifted to young people turning 18 to allow them access into sort of cultural events and activities. And our thought was, how about we replicate this and try and do the same thing? So First Festival is crowdfunded by donations, so by some of our members. It's powered by a company called Tickets for Good. So we've had thousands of young people signed up already and we're about to gift our first round of tickets to festivals this summer. It's incredible that you're doing it. It's also incredible that other countries are doing that at government level. The aim of this campaign is to really see whether we can try and replicate some of those initiatives here in the UK because we've got the most tremendously rich music culture, you know, the tourism that music generates for the UK is phenomenal. I think these sorts of initiatives will actually bring people back into shows, give people those experiences where they might not be able to afford them and continue, I guess, that sort of rich heritage uh, that we have in terms of attending events. Talk to me about the importance of music festivals 
within the wider music industry ecosystem because in my lifetime, festivals have gone from being something full of hardcore music fans and, and crusties to very much part of the mainstream. It would have been unthinkable to me as a young man that uh, Glastonbury would be one of the BBC's central cultural events of the year. Is that reflected in what festivals are now doing for the music industry? I 100% think so. I think festivals are so important for artists, people working backstage and people attending. So in terms of artists getting their first gigs and their first shows and that first real play to a big live audience. There's nothing quite like that level of community that festivals create. And now there are so many amazing conversations happening and initiatives happening throughout festivals covering things like sustainability and conversations around safety that I think previously or in in outside of that might not be happening in such a microcosm. I also think, you know, there's the relationships, the memories, the experiences that you gain from that are just invaluable. We had a couple who met at El Dorado a few years ago and got married at the festival this summer. You can't deny, I don't think, like how important they are to sort of that human experience. And as festivals have grown and the, the promoters of the big ones have grown and, uh, and consolidated in some cases, has that, has that made it more difficult to be an independent festival? I think having the economy of scale definitely gives you an advantage. And I think some of the major players are definitely growing to a size where we'll see more independent festivals not be able to keep up, not be able to keep up with those rising costs. And I think that's a real shame because I think what you get from the independent sector is a level of creativity and grassroots music that you might not necessarily get at those shows. We definitely are more creative and more dynamic with how we book. So we get artists at an earlier stage of their journey. So I think what we put on as shows and particularly within the independent shows and what you'll see there is those sort of raw early stage careers. And I think people love that. They love that beginning point. We've had artists come, go and come back. And then we've obviously had artists that have now gone ultra mega. We booked Joy Crooks, I think it's 2017, and she's obviously now an uber mega mega star. It was amazing having her there at the show. She delivered such an incredible performance, like one of those performances that the audience like gave loads of great feedback on. Musicians are some of the most outspoken voices on the impact of Brexit. You hear a lot of concern about the effects on, on touring musicians. Is that something that has factored into festivals? Yeah, for sure. I mean... It's definitely more expensive booking acts from the EU now. So as a result, we actually book fewer artists from Europe, which is a real shame, I think, because we're not being able to get certain acts over. We've also seen it affect young artists not being able to vice versa go abroad and be able to afford to get on that tour, which I think it is quite well documented. It's such a damaging thing for those careers. It's a real sort of missing link, I guess, to that tour. Yeah, it must be really important to do the festival circuit at that beginner's level to build an audience across a continent. Yeah, 100%. I think so. So it's, I think it's affecting everyone. Finally, give me your, if you have the unlimited checkbook, <laughs> what is your fantasy Eldorado lineup? Oh my God. I mean, mine will be so different and I'll probably be punished by our talent bookers for saying this. Oh, fantasy Eldorado lineup. So we've been after Casey and the Sunshine Band for a really long time and we had them headlined this year, which was awesome. They brought their Las Vegas show, which was um, a total mega, mega move. So I really loved that. 
you know, in future years, I'd love to have, for me, I'd be booking some mega female pop star, but they're way beyond our budget. What are we talking, Beyonce? Who? who? Oh, my God. I mean, if Beyonce or El Dorado, that would be a fantasy, but... (laughs) I don't think uh, we'll ever quite get those heights, for sure. I look forward to seeing what you uh, you have up your sleeve for next year. Kate Osler from El Dorado Festival, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, to carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Chiara Badiali, who is the music lead for Julie's Bicycle. Tell us what Julie's Bicycle does. Hi, Ed. It's great to be here. So Julie's Bicycle is a charity. We were set up uh, around... 15, actually just over 15 years ago. And we work on mobilizing the arts, culture, creative community to take action on the climate, nature, justice crisis in recognition that sort of politics and technology alone aren't going to solve this and that the climate crisis is a cultural crisis. So how do we play our part in this transformation? And your founder was Julie and she does have a bicycle. Neither of those are true. (laughs) Neither of those are true. So how did the name Julie's Bicycle arise? So our founder is Alison and she arrived at a dinner with various, at the time, music industry guests who were coming together to figure out what they were going to do on climate change, arriving to a restaurant called Julie's on her bicycle. Ah, And hence the name. Now, so there is definitely a sort of orientation towards environmental action at big festivals like Glastonbury and so on. Is that correct? Are we right to think that? Is Julie's Bicycle got things to say about how well the music industry and festivals in particular are doing on this? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, you're definitely right to say that. Um, we've been working with different festival organisers um, for as long as we've been around, looking at what they can do behind the scenes and increasingly also looking at what they can do in terms of how they speak to audiences, how they speak to everyone who works at the event on both reducing environmental impact, but also really recognizing, you know, we've just had the latest published figures and around six and a half million people attended music festivals in 2022. And that's a huge opportunity to to speak to everyone. Definitely. And, and what are you trying to persuade the festivals to do and and what's the nature of the work that you do with them? So I think when we're looking at a festival, especially one that you're kind of setting up in in a green field, you're building a town for people for a weekend. That means getting energy in. It means feeding people. It means bringing in stuff and making sure waste is taken care of. So really, we're trying to work with festival organizers to look at all of those bits and pieces, how we reduce that environmental impact. And that can be big initiative. So there's something called Vision 2025, which is an outdoor event climate action network. There's really practical initiatives, something called Powerful Thinking that we've been working on for over 10 years, which is looking at how do we get rid of diesel generators from festival sites? How do we stop burning those fossil fuels? So interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And is that happening? Yes. I think we've seen a real change from, you know, in the early days, over 10 years ago, it was hard to even get information out of the power suppliers. And now we've got new battery power technology. We've got promoters like Festival Republic looking at how they connect to the main grid on their event site. We had Glastonbury this year working with Octopus Energy on bringing a wind turbine with to site. Turbine. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's a real shift that that is happening across the sector. And are there things that you think that festivals should be doing 
that they're not? Where are you trying to push them? I think definitely, you know, keeping on, on on how we shift, how we power festivals. We have been working a lot looking at how festivals work with audiences on greener travel. That can be a huge part of the carbon footprint. Individual festivals doing some brilliant stuff around putting on dedicated coaches. We are looking at kind of how we start conversations about some of transformations that are needed in wider society. Like we know that we have to eat a lot less meat and fish. So we've had some festivals like Shambhala who've actually gone meat and fish free to have that conversation with audiences. We have other festivals who are introducing things like carbon labeling for the food that's being served on site. It's really looking at every single opportunity of how do we orient ourselves to building a different world and really take advantage of the kind of laboratory and playful space almost that a festival offers to to look at the future we want to build together. What aspects of the music industry and festivals themselves are most environmentally damaging? I mean, because there's two aspects, aren't there? There's the question of the impact the festival has and then the impact a festival that's committed on the environment can have on audience goers more generally in their lives. But on the first, what's the kind of damaging aspects that you're worried about? Yeah, I, th- I think definitely energy because it's where we're burning fossil fuels directly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely how we use materials and waste. How can we get better at using things like timber and reusing it for the decorations that get built, but then also, again, shifting away from single-use plastics and towards things like reusable cups. I mean, it is quite striking at Glastonbury. I know I sound like a sort of Glastonbury veteran. I've got all, all the enthusiasm of a relative newbie. You know, people queue up, they refill their water bottles. We could be doing that across our society much, much, much more than we do at railway stations, at other places. People are very happy to do it. They don't have to pay, you know, pound fifty, two pounds, whatever it is for a plastic bottle. It's interesting, isn't it? You can change behaviour quite easily. You can. And I think, you know, uh, that's where festival organizers have that power. They kind of set the rules of what happens on on the event site itself. And there is a lot that we can do with that in terms of inspiring those different differences in behavior. Talk to us about the other areas. So there's energy, there's the use of plastics. Yeah. Um, and I mean, we know that travel is a really big one. Again, whenever yeah. we, we look at carbon footprints, especially of events that are, you know, out in a greenfield somewhere, how people arrive is really important. So what we can do as organizers to nudge those behaviors, again, setting different rules, but also incentivize greener travel. Is there a Julie's Bicycle League table? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there should be a Julie's Bicycle League table. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it gets talked about a lot in, in the sector. And I think we, we've tried to benchmark different things in the past. But really, I think what we try to do a lot also in you know the Vision 2025 network is not just talk about competition, but also really talk about collaboration and what we can learn from each other and, and how we move together. Do you think it influences festival goers' decisions about which ones they go to? I think to some extent, I think festival goers, you know, I think most people have their favorite festivals and it's something to do with the whole vision and story that an event is telling. So there are some that are really oriented towards environmental action. And I think there will be people that are drawn to that. Is it ever going to be more important than the, the artists that are playing? Yeah. We don't know. We've done lots of surveys, sure. but but people do care. And I think it is starting to really show up when festivals ask people what's important to them. Environmental action is right up there. So that's also what we're responding to. 
And then what about this thing about influencing people's behavior at you know all year round but through a festival or not just people's behavior but what people ask governments to do and so on i mean there must be big opportunities there huge ones and again i think through programming through what campaigns you give a platform to on stage what types of sponsorships and partnerships festivals and events make yeah. as well and sort of activating that voice we we've seen campaigns like music declares emergency really take off with that again really using that collective voice of the six and a half million people who come through festivals every year. And that is a lot of people. That's 10% of the population. <laughs> it's massive, yes. Um, and I think, you know, again, for, for us at Julie's Bicycle, that's, that, that is really why we do what we do. It's sort of aligning what the sector does behind the scenes because we, we want to walk the talk, but we also really do this because we recognise the role that that the arts can play in this. Like the climate crisis asks us so many questions that are culturally important. You know, it asks us about how we live, what values we aspire to, how we live together, what the world is that we want to build, how we want to fix some of the broken social inequalities. And all of those are cultural questions. And I think it means that working in the arts, working in festivals, we want to be part of that conversation. As somebody who's got a mild interest in what government can do, <laughs> what can government do? <laughs> if you could wave your magic wand and talk to somebody who's, you know, aspiring to be the Secretary of State for <laughs> climate change and net zero, what would you say to them? I think a, a really important part is, is actually just recognising the importance of arts and culture in this. We tend to get left out of the conversation so often or brought in at the very last minute of, you know, can you actually put on an art piece about this and, and really being much more deeply embedded in this. Obviously, strengthening legislation really does help. Like Julie's Bicycle, I don't think we would be here if it hadn't been for the impending Climate Change Act. You know, we were founded in 2006, 2007. And so you had that legislation on the horizon. And it, it, that obviously focuses the minds of, of anyone who is running a business. We've had some really positive stories in this country, like Arts Council England has been working on environmental responsibility with us for over 10 years. But we also looking to, to other places like the, the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure and Water is coordinating a, a European Green Deal for circular festivals. If you recognise the role of festivals maybe as, as incubators for a greener future, then you unlock a huge amount. I mean, you must be right that, you know, the cultural spaces that exist have a huge influence. And to the extent that, you know, festivals want to talk about these issues is really important. It is. It's finding that balance between keeping the creativity in there. Like no one wants to feel like the festival Can't be is... eat your greens, government eat your greens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But within that sort of giving, giving event organisers that freedom to really let that creativity speak and, and bring people together to experience what a greener future could look like. That is the real power of it. Yeah. Which festivals have done really well? We won't have a sort of walk of shame, but the, <laughs> let's have a walk of fame. What, which are the festivals that have done really well on this? So I think really big shout outs for the likes of um, Shambhala Festival, who again have looked at food, have looked at power, who were one of the first to bring in reusable cups and refillable water bottles. Events like Green Gathering, who again have been working on this throughout. And also on the commercial side, I think a really big shout out to the likes of Festival Republic, who have often kind of invested in you know the supply chain changes that we need um, and the initiatives that we need 
Kendall Calling has done some amazing work just in the past year. So again, it's it's really thinking through the, the creativity that we can bring into this. Let's end with what's your reason to be cheerful about the role festivals are playing, Kiara? You've given us some already, but... The reason that I do what I do is I'm a huge live music fan and I think the festival sector, again, it employs tens of thousands of people a year. And my reason to be cheerful is that we want to keep the music going. We want to keep festivals going, but we also want to make sure that the way that we're putting on the shows that we love is oriented towards that climate nature justice crisis and and the world that we want to build. Because otherwise, what are we here for? And I feel that that's happening. Fantastic. Chiara Badiali, music lead at Julie's Bicycle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Here we are. Now, look, can I just plug David Runciman's new podcast? I think it is really good, Past, Present, Future. Because when talking politics ended, you, you were bereft, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I've also got a confession to make. You know, we had Daniel Chandler on talking about his book on rules. Yes. Well, often if we've had an author on, I think, well, I don't really need to listen to them again. But anyway, I listened to him with an academic Leah uh, EP who wrote this book called Free about growing up in Eastern Europe. And honestly, it was such a good discussion. And then he's got this history of ideas section. Why don't you just marry David Runciman? Why don't you just go off and do a podcast with him? Well, I think you're in no position to talk. <laughs> I mean, you are you know, you are the definition of podcast promiscuity, I'm afraid. Podcast polyamorous. Poly, yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you, you know, you should put that on your Facebook thing. Podcast polyamor. <laughs> that is true. That's a very good description. Yeah, yeah, all right. Touche. Touche. I mean, obviously, people should carry on listening to our podcast. I should want to be clear about that. Yes. Okie dokie. I'd like to thank our guests, Chris Anderton, Kate Osler, and Chiara Badiali. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. I think Emma herself is at a, a festival as we speak. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.